According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are once again in Philippians chapter 1. Still in chapter 1? All right. Still in chapter 1. We are in the third and final paragraph of chapter 1. So we are rushing headlong towards chapter 2. To live as Christ and to die as gain. And uh, the statement that, in fact, for a lot of folks, when they think Philippians, the first thing they think about is to live as Christ, to die as gain. You know, uh, There's so many good Bible verses in Philippians, or maybe they think of the kenosis passage, or maybe they think of the anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known. Or, I mean, there's, there's no shortage of Bible verses throughout the four chapters of Philippians that have been very near and dear to uh, those that memorize Bible verses. Um, but anyway, this is one of the big ones, maybe the biggest ever. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Before we begin tonight, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside our distractions and to humble us under the authority of His eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon Your faithfulness, Father, tonight to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless the, uh, the diligence of these students that are uh, studiously eager to show themselves approved. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. <laughs> wow, that brought back memories. My childhood pastor uh, translated, did his own exegesis and translation of, of 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 2.15 about, and so the spudazzo imperative there that's simply rendered be, be diligent, uh, he translates it studiously eager. Be studiously eager to show yourself approved. And uh, dang, I hadn't thought about that in probably 20 years. In any event, uh, we want to start off with some questions tonight. The microphone runner is ready to go, and I don't know of any old business that's uh, still lingering, so we'll come up here to the front row and uh, we'll give Chuck our leadoff question. Because these are still marked red, I've got to recolor those, but those were answered last week. Yes, sir. So this morning when you were teaching in Proverbs, you talked about uh, the word for abundantly is the same as satisfied, mm -hmm. but you didn't say what the word was. And can you tell us what that word is That's for both of them? Yeah. That's translated both ways? That was in uh, Proverbs 13, 25. <laughs> mm -hmm. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite. Uh, Sabbat. And so we pull up Sabbat for satiation, bring a word study up on that. Bring it over there. All right, so it's Sabbat. Um, find a Strong's number for you. S-O-B-A and then the closed, uh, the, the, the I-N apostrophe there where it angles to the left. Number 7648 is the Strong's number. And uh, you'll notice it uh, has eight occurrences, and uh, it's the King James, the AV, translates it as full five times, um, fullness once, sufficed once, satisfying once. It is translated as uh, satiety, abundance, fullness, and, and that's what I was talking about this morning. We, we tend to think of something that satisfies or something that's sufficient and we have two different words, two different adjectives. Either something is sufficient or something is abundant. And uh, we would never conflate those two. You know, in fact, we might even be a little bit dissatisfied if something is just sufficient, you know, like, like the bare minimum, really? You know, sufficient? You know, we're Americans, we want more. Bigger, better, more, right? And so the idea of sufficient, well, okay, but I'd rather have abundant. And yet, in the Hebrew, it, they overlap. And the concept is, is, if it is sufficient, then of course it's abundant, because it's coming from the God of grace. And so, uh, anyway, yeah, that's, so that's the term there. So about number 7648, with eight Old Testament uses. Uh-huh. Great question. Had fun this morning. In fact, I kind of want to just teach that whole class all over again. I had so much fun with that. All right, Lewis, you get our next question there. 
Um, this came up this afternoon, and me and another person were debating this, but anyway. Second Timothy 3.15, uh-huh. of course the, the context takes you, I guess, back to verse 11. This salvation, is that experiential or is it positional? I take it as positional. Hmm. I take it as positional. From a childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now you can read that and understand the concept on an experiential basis, but I don't think that's Paul, what Paul is driving at here in, in the whole context of chapter 3. Uh, you know, Going back to verse 11 or even verse 10. Continuing the things you have learned, become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Now, okay, so given the fact that Timothy is told to continue to abide in what he's learned, and uh, the scriptures are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. So, yeah, you could look at that experientially as well, but I've always taken that on a positional basis. So I'll think about it. Might be one of those that I teach one way and then 12 years later I teach it a different way and then somebody says, you know, I was listening to one of your MP3s from 2002 and you taught it a different way and uh, I just kind of smiled and said, wow, you mean I've grown up since 2002? That's, that's marvelous. Probably 12 years from now I might learn something else between now and then too, I don't know. So, all right, thank you for that though, I appreciate it. Anyway, it could be both? It could be both, sure. I mean, that, it wouldn't be the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Just because we, we put them in three or four different boxes doesn't mean it can't really answer two different boxes at the same time. And, and so it could actually refer to both of them. This is also the text, I think, that leads me, when, when, he, when he speaks about how even a child can learn the Scriptures. You know, Paul was raised by two Pharisees. He said, I'm a Pharisee, the child of Pharisees. His father and mother were both Pharisees. So, you know, you talk about a, a homeschool education that gives you, you know, seminary level uh, PhD, you know, by the time you're in junior high, that was Paul. And, uh, you know, so I think that he had eternal life from his childhood, uh, but then got steeped in the arrogance of, of, of Phariseeism and needed the Damascus Road to humble him and uh, bring him into the church age. So, in any event. All right, so we need a microphone across the aisle. We're going to be bipartisan tonight. Oh, did I just say something? Okay. Okay, so when he says a Pharisee of Pharisees, I thought that meant like I'm a man, man among men or whatever. I thought that was just I'm I'm more of a Pharisee than even all the group I'm associated with. But you took it as both, actually. Yes, it's uh, he's a Pharisee and the child of Pharisees. Huh. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> and and there's a couple of different passages where he gives his background in Corinthians, in Galatians, in. Uh, and so depending in Acts when he's talking about his, in, in one of his trials, when he's talking about his upbringing and you know my former manner of life in Judaism and things like that. So depending on which narrative you're reading, uh, I think you're right about that Pharisee of Pharisees like Song of Songs or like, you know, the pinnacle of, of whatever. Yeah, yeah. But it also speaks to his parents and to their role in the Pharisee party. All right, Bill, next question to the back row there. Yeah, we have the young man running microphone tonight, so we're free to run them hard. Yes, sir. In Acts 17, from uh, what I'm figuring, is that uh, Paul quotes a um, pagan poet, mm-hmm. or at least a pagan philosopher mm-hmm. in Acts 17. Exactly what verses um, is it that he's, where it shows that what he's quoting is from the, the, the pagan poet? What verse are we looking at? Um, it, all I know is it says Acts chapter 17. Okay, it's the bottom half of the chapter. It's his uh, sermon at Athens. Sermon on Mars Hill. Uh, Let's see. Because I'm seeing 20, chapter uh, 17, verses 22. Through twenty-eight. All right, uh, verse twenty-eight specifically. 
uh, for in him we live and move and exist. Let me get it back large again. See, if I get it so large you guys can see it, then I can never see anything. Uh, so uh, God doesn't need anything. For in him uh, we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. And that quote, for, for we are also his children, comes from a pagan Greek poet. And if I think about it hard enough, uh, Epimedes, I think, uh, one of the, anyway, total pagan, unbeliever, he died and went to hell. Uh, but that was one of his quotes. It's not biblical. It's not biblical, but he makes use of it to, to draw it out as an illustration to say, look, this is true. So uh, we are his children. Is that what you were asking? What, yeah. what verse is that that has that quote? And who was yeah, the poet? That's what I was wondering. Okay. I'd have to double check on the poet. I might have that wrong. but Okay. It's like in Jude, when Jude quotes the Assumption of Moses, or, or Jude alludes to First Enoch and whatever. That doesn't mean that those books belong in our Bible. First Enoch does not. But it just means that the Bible teacher has found an illustration that serves, you know, a quote or something that uh, serves to edify as he draws the principle out. Okay, yeah. All right, good. Good, good, good. All right, over here. A quick question. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, where it says existed, is that a re- does the tense use of the verb return, refer to an eternal preexistence? Uh, yes, I would take it that way. It's a present active participle. Yeah, that's a continuous action tense. So, although he exists in the form of God, and the point is, is that, of course, he was without a body. He was God. In, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Um, and so that was his form, his morphe. Uh, but then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he took on the form, the morphe, of, of humanity and humbled himself in that process of doing that. And he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, as Satan kept saying, you know, I will be like the Most High God. And Satan was all about self-promotion and trying to claim something he wasn't entitled to. Here's Jesus, who had every entitlement. He was God, and yet he went the other direction. He didn't exalt himself, he humbled himself. And he actually accepted a form, a very finite form, a monopresent form. Can you imagine going from omnipresent to monopresent. And then for the first nine months, that monopresent was in a womb. <laughs> you know? So you talk about a very humbling limitation, self-limitation of, of that in the kenosis. So that's, uh, yeah, it's a great question. I appreciate, uh, I was going to tease you and say, can I answer that next week? But I uh, didn't want to do that. Back to Paul. Yes. A Pharisee um, did they not believe in the resurrection? They did. Oh, the, it was the Sadducees. It was, it was the Sadducees, right? okay. which is why they were sad, you see. The Pharisees. <laughs> Sorry. You won't forget it now, will you? No. Okay. So the Pharisees were supposed to believe in righteousness, right? Oh, very much so. Yeah, then why they were did the they torture and murder well, that shows Christians. how righteous they are. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're satanically evil and you're just crusading for, for the good, then the ends always justify the means, you know, because you're serving the Lord, you know, hallelujah, brother, and we're putting this heretic to death. And, and so, you know, when you are under such insanity of satanic pride and arrogance uh, in the ancient world or today, in the modern world, doesn't matter, uh, the ends will always justify the means, and anyone can can convince themselves that whatever they do is is acceptable because it serves the greater good and uh, so it 's not shocking to me at all that they and they were so uh, while they 're plotting their murder and they 're doing all this other stuff they 're still very fastidious enough not to cross into the praetorium and defile themselves when they were trying to they made they made Pontius Pilate come out to them they didn 't want to cross the the praetorium and defile themselves before they had their Passover dinner. So, uh, yeah, it just, it's, it's sad. Yeah. They should be called the Sadducees. <laughs> That's right. Extra sad. 
Yeah, the name Pharisee means set apart one, and they, they viewed themselves as a cut above. That obviously Jews are better than Gentiles, but then even amongst the Jews, a step above, you know, the cream of the crop, or the cream of the cream of the crop, are the Pharisees. And uh, because they are so holy and so set apart that, uh, you know, a, a Jew wouldn't want to defile himself with a Gentile, well, a Pharisee wouldn't want to defile himself with a non-Pharisee. Even if they were a Jew, they're not a Pharisee. So that was, uh, that's how they got that name. So, All right, let's cross the aisle again, back row over there. Good questions tonight, appreciate everything, absolutely. In follow-up to that, uh-huh. um, so I'm, I'm uh, wondering about the resurrection that the um, Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees didn't. Correct. And um, I don't know the nature of her question because it wouldn't matter because they, they were already putting to death that which would have been resurrected. Mm-hmm. But did, is it just that they knew that there were supposed to be a resurrection of who would be their, their king? Yeah, I think um, maybe not so much so. Okay, so the idea of resurrection um, was one that they definitely held to, and they, they had strong biblical grounds for doing so from Psalms, from Job, from other passages. I think um, the, um, in John 11, when Jesus tried to encourage Mary and say, you know, your brother will rise again, and she said, well, I know, Lord, in the uh, resurrection of the last day, and, uh, you know, thanks a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, jo- uh, John eleven twenty three. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so that would be, that would be the, Pharisee, uh, the Pharisee theology. That would be their view. Uh, the Sadducees would reject that view. The Essenes, I'm not sure. There were other uh, denominations. So not the resurrection after the cross. Oh, no, the resurrection after the cross. That's what, that's what confused me. Because it's right, like, right, right. Okay, no, no. he's got to be resurrected after he goes to the cross. It's right. important that the Pharisees put him on the cross so they could be resurrected. But what a weird concept for, the, for some camp of the you know, Jews to believe yeah. that that was going to happen and some not. You I, know think what I, got, mean? I think they got scared. I think after they put him to death, that's why they went to Pilate and said... Uh, you know, when that liar was still alive, he said that he was going to rise again on the third day. Can, can we get some soldiers and guard this tomb? You know, why were they so scared? You know, were they starting to, to wonder? You know, because remember, even after Lazarus was brought back, they tried to, they had a murder plot against him. You know, let's kill him again, uh, kind of a thing. And so, yeah, what, what was going through their mind? Did they, did they really know? I think Nicodemus, when he said, we know you have come from God, from heaven as a teacher sent from God, he used the we plural there. So he wasn't the only Pharisee that was thinking these things through and coming to those conclusions. And um, so, and it's kind of interesting that Pharisees and Sadducees all agreed that Jesus had to die. I think they just had different reasons for, for agreeing to that, to that fact. Because the high priest is a Sadducee. All the priests were Sadducees. Uh, the Pharisees were the theologians and the Bible scholars and the scribes, but they didn't have the priestly uh, authority that the Sadducees had. So, but I think uh, so. They had the concept of resurrection in general. Did they know that the Christ had to die and rise again? I'm not so sure about that because even Jesus and his disciples, uh, they were a little bit puzzled. They would say, "Well, what are you talking about dying for? We thought when Messiah comes, he would rule forever." And then Jesus would take the time to explain to his disciples, "says No, I'm going to die and then rise again on the third day." And that became a challenge for, for the twelve. They had to accept that by faith. I don't know that the, uh, the Pharisees would have, they, I don't think they would have gleaned that out of, out of Old Testament theology unless Jesus had specifically taught that to them. And what is, oh, sorry, what is Elizabeth, it's Elizabeth that's saying that. What is she referring to in that, that resurrection of the last day? Resurrection of the last day, uh, referring to Daniel 12, referring to uh, Job uh, 14, referring to uh, Psalm um, 16, referring to general promises in the Old Testament of the last day, that on the last day the righteous rise and live with and live with the Messiah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Appreciate all these questions. These are outstanding. If I didn't get to yours, then uh, we'll uh, get to it next week, or shoot me an email in the meantime. Hopefully we won't have a computer crash tonight. Last week we lost all the Q&A. There was a glitch and the recording stopped and so uh, Kevin had to reboot it and get it going again and 
And so uh, that's why the, the MP3 from last Wednesday is about half, half as long as it normally is, including the, uh, the great uh, call to worship you guys love so much and the um, questions and answers got cut out as well. So I uh, apologize for that. All right, Philippians chapter 1. According, uh, verse 20 says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Life and death are beside the point. Whether life or whether death, doesn't matter. So eta zoe or eta thanatos, doesn't matter. Uh, that's, that's beside the point. The point is, Paul does not want to be put to shame. He wants to exalt and magnify Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that matters. So if, uh, if something is going to result in putting Paul to shame, then he doesn't want it. Even if that means he has to die, he doesn't want it. He wants to exalt and glorify Jesus Christ. And so in this then, we are in point three in the outline, but let me back up to point two whether by life or by death. And so this is the phrase that we have here, this eta and eta. There's the first eta, there's the second eta. Okay? Uh, in English we like to have different words, either or, neither nor, whether this or that. In Greek uh, the particle just gets repeated a second time. And so it's the same eta on the one hand, zoe on the other hand, eta thanatos. So uh, eta dia zoes, eta dia thanatu whether by life or by death. Of course, Pastor Thien developed the doctrine of the mastery of circumstances and details of life, and many of us uh, know that doctrine very well, cut our teeth on that doctrine, uh, as we say. Uh, maybe we need to expand it, give it uh, a, stretch the title out a little bit, because uh, should we add death to uh, life? It's uh, circumstances and details of life and death. Um, also, uh, the idea of mastery has always bugged me. I don't like the word mastery. That mastery tells me like I'm in charge of something. Uh, and I'm not in charge of my circumstances. But what I do have is a comprehensive, or I'm sorry, a steadfast divine viewpoint throughout every circumstance. So I don't control the circumstances. I don't have mastery of the circumstances. I might have mastery of my own thinking and my own peace of mind as I stay you know, focused on doctrine and occupied with Christ. But the mastery, to actually master the circumstances, that's God's business. Uh, my business is just to stay faithful and keep my eyes on Jesus. And so uh, I, I prefer to re-label re this if I may. Um, and of course the colonel's in heaven so he can't stop me. But um, the <laughs> Instead of mastery, I, I like a steadfast divine viewpoint throughout every circumstance and detail of life and death. All right? And maybe I'll go with that and stick with that for the next 20 years or something. But um, anyway, it'll be my working title moving forward, subject to some tweaking and, and adjustments. Um, one thing that came up also since Sunday morning was well, isn't really death just a, another circumstance of life? It's the circumstance of how the life comes to a conclusion, right? And it's like birth is a circumstance of life, death is a circumstance in detail of life. Uh, okay, I, I guess you got me on that. In any event, the point is, is that we have here a life and death passage. And for the unbeliever or for the carnal believer, a life and death matter is, is the ultimate, right? What could be more important than a matter of life and death? And yet when the Bible puts forth many of these life and death contrasts, the point that's being made is beside the point. It's not the life and death point that's being made. And I love that. I think this is a prime example. It's a life and death passage, whether by life or by death. But the point being made is not whether he lives or dies. That's beside the point. The point that's being made is that he wants to glorify Christ and not be put to shame. That's the point that's being made. And we're going to see some more of these. In fact, I got five of them uh, of, of uh, beside the point points that are made in the New Testament in life and death passages. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to, we'll get there into point four. Um, so this is what we're looking at. And so on Sunday we talked about the vocabulary here for both life and death. Uh, Zoe is the, is the noun for life. It's a feminine noun. Uh, Z-O-E, number 2222. You can't forget that. Right? 2222, it's a road that heads curvy 
up and down the hills out there west of town. But 2222 is not just a road, it's a Strong's number for Zoe life, okay? And you, you can't forget that. And uh, Zoe comes from Zao, Zao is the verb, number 2198, uh, to live. And between the 135 uses of the noun and the 140 uses of the verb, you've got 275 different places to go looking at to get uh, all the detail of what the New Testament has to say about Zoe and uh, Zao. And then thanatos, T-H-A-N-A-T-O-S, death that comes from the verb apothanesco, A-P-O-T-H-N-E-S-K-O. And uh, that's right, when I was teaching this on Sunday, I didn't have my Greek students here. So tonight, my Greek students can pay attention. And uh, you will be marked wrong if you misspell apothanesco. There is a tiny little iota subscript underneath the eta of apothanesco. And if you misspell if you leave out that iota subscript, you will be misspelling the verb and uh, be graded accordingly. So Thanatos uh, is number 2288, has 119 uses. Apathanesco is number 599, and it has 111 uses. So that's 230 uses altogether between death and dying. All right? Between death and dying, the noun and the verb. And so we went through kind of a survey of, of the life passages and went through kind of a survey on the death passages. I'm not going to come back to that, but I think it is useful like we do with save, like we do with so many other terms, with uh, jealousy, with fear. Uh, we stop and ask ourselves, does the Bible use these words in different ways? And if the Bible uses these words in different ways, what are the different ways that the Bible uses these terms? And so I make sure that I, I rightly divide the word of truth and I categorize them appropriately. See, And death is one of those terms. Life is one of those terms. Because it can use life to reference spiritual life or physical life. It can uh, use uh, death to reference physical death or spiritual death or even operational death or even sexual death. I can show you a verse in, uh, I think it's in Acts, that talks about Abraham's impotency uh, that even though he was sexually dead, God still did the miracle to, uh, which is why Sarah was laughing I think so hard, is uh, uh, gave, did, gave the miracle to restore Abraham's sexual life. And, uh, and so they had marital relations for the first time in however long, because he was 100 and she was 90. And, uh, and here comes Isaac. And so they named him Laughter. How appropriate, you know, in, in that. But that's a passage that refers to a, a death. Okay, So we've got physical death, spiritual death, um, operational death we talk about. There's a, which is a believer when you're carnal, when you're out of fellowship. You don't lose your salvation, so you're not spiritually dead, but you are carnal. So you have an operational death. The Holy Spirit's not empowering your walk while you're in carnality. Um, other deaths as well in the, in the New Testament. So we want to ask ourselves these things. Uh, when we're contrasting life or we're contrasting death, we don't want to mix our metaphors. We don't want to talk about, and this is where too many theologies go bad in Romans 5. Because they're talking about through one man sin entered in the world and death through sin, so also through one man uh, and one man's act of righteousness and obedience comes life. So Adam is the origin of death and Jesus is the origin for life. But too many theologians start mixing their metaphors there in, uh, in Romans chapter 5. And they, uh, they want to apply obviously spiritual life to faith in Christ, but then they want to apply physical death to, uh, to Adam and his original sin. And it's just not fair to the text to do that. Uh, it's spiritual death in Adam and spiritual life in Christ. So these are the terms and this is uh, what we do here. Now um, in this we then get to main point three. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What does it mean to live? You know we think we know what it means to live, right? I mean I'm looking out here and everyone I see in this room is alive. <laughs> so what does that mean? You're not dead. What does that mean? Okay. Well, we can define it in different ways. How does the Bible define it? But the idea of life, um, one way you don't want to think of it, it's very common, but just get it out of your mind. Don't think of life as activity and death as inactivity. Stop that. Stop that now. I think that's uh, it's, a, it's a poor, it's not a biblical approach and it will actually damage your understanding of, of biblical concepts because the spiritually dead are very active. 
Okay? Uh, the, dead, the dead are doing all kinds of things. The dead are hostile to what we're doing and they're very fervent about it. They're very busy. Ephesians says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of this, of this age. And so um, the dead are very active. Don't think of life and death as active and inactive. I'm looking at it, you know, I'm seeing life not because you're active, all right? Um, and my illustration breaks down because I'm talking about physical life here. Uh, but the idea of life, spiritually speaking, is Christ, all right? And so we want to we center on that. Anything that's not Christ is not a part of our spiritual life. It might be part of our temporal life, it might be part of our biological life, it might be part of our secular life. Um, you know, it might be, there's other terms that apply to our livelihood, for example. What do you do for a living? Oh, well, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an Indian chief, I'm whatever, I'm a, I'm a pastor, okay? That ends a lot of conversations when you're talking to different people. So, what do you do for a living, right? And, uh, and, and that, you know, but whatever that discussion is, that's, that living is not Zoe life, okay? That living is, is bios life. It's, it's, it's where we get biology. It's, it's the secular temporal life, okay? And, um, but to live, zao, to live is Christ. No one without Christ lives. No, if you're without Christ, you're without life. You're without Zoe. Because the only way to obtain Zoe is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So faith in Christ and the gift of God is Zoe. Eternal life in Christ. So, uh, now under this some, some interesting things. Um, it is a present active infinitive, Zao. And this is kind of fun because uh, when you get into, uh, we, we're coming up on this chapter now in the Greek grammar that talks about infinitives and imperatives and participles and, and uh, other verb moods besides the, uh, the indicative. Uh, but here is an infinitive, okay? What's an infinitive? A verbal infinitive. Uh, the infinitive is the idea of a verb. The idea of a verb. It's not the reality of the verb being exercised. It's not you know, to live, right? To be or not to be. The idea to preach, okay? To ramble. Whatever it is. It's, it's the idea of a verb. And that idea of a verb often is, is, is a noun, is, is, a, is, is a subject or an object of a sentence and it's connected to a different verb or it's connected to a different noun or something of that nature. So to live, to live. It's a present active infinitive of to live. And I like the fact that it's a present infinitive. The uh, to die is, is an aorist infinitive. And so uh, if you're going to get your first taste of what an infinitive is and you're trying to learn the nuances between a present infinitive and an aorist infinitive, there's a good verse to start with. Because you've got to live, present infinitive, and to die, aorist infinitive. All right. Present active infinitive defines the very idea of living as Christ himself. So the very idea of living. That's what an infinitive is, the idea of a verb. So to live, what does it mean to live? So if it's not Christ, it, by definition, it's not living. Okay. So if, uh, if you're denying Christ and living in carnality, is that your zao life that's doing that? Not at all. You're quenching the Holy Spirit. You're going back to the old man. You're putting on the old man again. It, you, the new nature does not sin. The new nature cannot sin. No one who is born of God sins, right? So that's a passage in 1 John that bothers a lot of people, but uh, if, you, if you consider the fact that you have that new nature in Christ, but you haven't yet put that old nature in the ground until physical death, then now we recognize that every time I sin, it's coming from that old nature. It's not coming from my new nature in Christ. There's no one who is born of God sins. All right, well, John 1 4, in this powerful prologue to the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. These are imperfect tenses expressing the continuous action in past time from eternity past. The Son was continually with the Father, and the Son and the Father are one. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. 
That is, Jesus Christ is the agent of the Father's creation. The Father is directing it, the Son is executing it, doing it. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And beyond all that, even if a, even if a universe springs into being, just in a bang or some kind of thing, um, if, if energy becomes matter somehow, um, where does the life come from? Okay? So all things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in Him was Zoe. In Him was life. And the life was, notice, the light of man. A definition of life here that uh, is Christ Himself, right? Because to live is Christ. It is In Him is life. And that life is, or was, and still is, the light of of men. Okay? The light of men. And so that's what we talk about. You come to the light when you get saved. The, uh, you've seen the light. You come to the light. You're not walking in darkness. All those unbelievers that are still walking in darkness, guess what? No life. No light. But those that come to the light is life. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. And so that's what we're talking about. The conflict between light and darkness. The provision of life over death, the victory that is life, not death. At the end, it's life that wins, not death. The victory belongs to life. And so the very idea of living is Christ Himself. When you think about your Christian walk, you think about your spiritual life, when you wake up every day and thank God to be spiritually alive, okay, understand that it's Christ, not you. Not for your sake, okay? We get selfish, we get myopic, we get self-centered, and I'm, I'm very thankful that because I'm saved, I'm not going to die and go to hell. But that's not why He saved me. He didn't save me so that I wouldn't die and go to hell. Why did He save me? Christ. All things f- through Him and for Him. The Father is preparing a bride for His Son, and He chose me to be a part of that bride. Not for me, for Him. For His sake, not for my sake. I I benefit, I'm happy for it, but my benefit is beside the point, okay? The point is Christ. And so if uh, if I'm not pursuing the things of Christ, if I'm not magnifying Christ, if I'm not uh, a fellow worker with God the Father in glorifying Jesus Christ, then I'm not walking my, my life the way I'm supposed to be. It just comes right down to that. 1 Corinthians 1.30 1 Corinthians 1.30. Paragraph that begins in verse 26, Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that He might nullify the things that are. See, our God is such an amazing God of grace. He's not looking down from heaven and picking out the people that deserve it and saying, oh, I can't help myself, I just got to give that guy eternal life. Right? He's not choosing the wise and the mighty and the strong and the popular and on the handsome, the people we would pick. Okay? Just the opposite. All right? Showing that it's all grace, it's not works, it's not what we've earned and deserved, it's not what we can offer Him, it's what He is offering us, so that no man may boast before God. But by His doing, everything is Him, by His doing you are in Christ Jesus. So to live is Christ. This is a great positional truth doctrine. If you are born again by faith in Christ, if you have eternal life, that means by His doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All these are interrelated salvation doctrines, okay? Which you're going to learn about when one of our students teaches the salvation doctrines in, on a Sunday night coming up in January, okay? It's going to include all of these, sanctification, redemption, justification. And all of this is because of Christ. It literally is Christ. Uh, I'm not going to stand before Christ in my own, or before the Father in my own righteousness. I'm going to stand before the Father with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
That's a good thing. Is my righteousness is filthy rags. It wouldn't get me anywhere. Okay? None of us would. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I'm in Christ, I get to boast in the Lord. This is where I am, my positional truth. Also, of course, my favorite is Galatians 2.20. I had it on the slide originally and then I took it out. And I took it out because I want to use it in point four. And I should have just left it in and used it in both places. Uh, both here and in point four. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. You know that? I used to live back before I died in Christ. Now I'm alive in Christ and now I live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So to live is Christ. Zao is Christos. Okay? Present active infinitive of Zao defines the very idea of living as Christ Himself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. There's no reason to be here if I'm not magnifying Christ. So the life which I now live in the flesh. That's another use, by the way. What are all the different ways the Bible uses the word flesh? Sometimes it's carnality. Sometimes it's sin. Sometimes it's a very negative thing. All this is saying is, look, I'm still in a physical human body. (laughs) Flesh and blood. But uh, it's not me anymore. It's Christ. So, uh, that's the present active infinitive of Zao. The aorist active infinitive, the aorist active infinitive of apothenesco, if, if the idea of living is Christ, what's the idea of dying? The idea of dying, well, it, it becomes a whole new thing though if you're living in Christ. If, if you're living in Christ, then the idea of dying is gain, promotion advantage, winning, okay? Hashtag winning, all right? No comment. I don't know where that came from. No, I didn't didn't know that. Okay, I didn't know that. In any event, notice though this is an aorist active infinitive, whereas living is a present active infinitive. And you say, well, why does that matter and who cares? Well, <laughs> you don't have to be a language geek to appreciate the genius of God's Word and the beauty of these things. Uh, present tense is linear, continuous, ongoing. Aorist is point, is punctiliar. It is an event, it is a simple event, it is a thing, and it is over and done before you know it. <laughs> okay? So we live forever, we die, at some moment of time we're going to die. We all will, unless the rapture happens. And when we die, that's our promotion. That's our gain. And then it's aorist tense, it's over and done with, we go back to living again, and we never stopped living actually. That zao is continuous action for all eternity. So the aorist active infinitive of apathenesco, it defines the very idea of dying as gain or profit, if you don't mind the word profit. It's a dirty word these days, but the Bible says it's a good word, so I'm okay with it. Okay, Profit gain, increase. uh, The father is productive and the father uh, promotes profit. The word is kurdos in the Greek. It's only used three times. Um, The verb kurdino is used 13 times as a verb. Kurdos is only used three times, including here and in chapter 3. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And in Philippians 3, Paul uses it a second time in this book in Titus in in, uh, verse 7. Philippians 3, 7, he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So there's gain and there's loss. Okay, It's like a profit and loss statement on a, on a counting ledger. There's gain and there's loss. There's profit and there's loss. Kurdos is the profit. Kurdos is the gain. And that's a good thing. Okay, Unless you're of a different... There is a certain political party that is, makes a lot of hay out of profit being a bad thing. And uh, anyway, they villainize it and they, they make it all evil and people that, want, that are interested in profits are only just greedy capitalists and, and we should just... Uh, anyway, don't get me going. Um, 
but kurdos and kurdino are positive things in the New Testament. And I think this is interesting because take the concept from 3.7, bring it back to chapter 1 and ask yourself this because Paul in chapter 3, you know what he's doing here in chapter 3? He's talking about He's talking about being a Hebrew of the Hebrews, being a Pharisee. And this is one of those passages we were talking about earlier. And every, every advantage that he had, circumcised on the eighth day, you know, from eight days old he was already keeping the law. And uh, of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, what else do you need to say? They're the, they're the best there is. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So he was outdoing his fellow uh, legalists more zealous than them. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. There was not, uh, you know, if, if it's all about comparing yourself to the next guy, there wasn't a next guy better than him. Okay? He was the, he was the champion of, of, of legalism. And, and then he writes it all off. And he says, uh, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So if you're a CPA or an accountant or whatever, you've got a ledger and uh, you've got the, the black numbers in this column with all of your assets and, and, and you've got the red numbers over here in this column with all of your, your, uh, your obligations, your debts, right? Accounts payable. And so you've got uh, your ledger and hopefully you want more black than red. You want, you know, you want to be uh, profitable, theoretically. Um, but what Paul does here, he takes all of these black items that human viewpoint would say, that's great. Your family, your education, your your church, and all this, and he he just chucks it all over there on the sorry Chuck, uh, chucks it all. <laughs> he moves it to the to the red column, and he says, "I'm just going to count that as as accounts payable, or and just I don't even want to think of that stuff anymore. That can all just go, because when I put Jesus Christ over here in the in the accounts receivable column." then I have everything. I'm the heir of all things. A fellow heir with Jesus Christ, the heir of all things. And so he says, I count that all loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is why to live is Christ, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but, yeah, dung. It's kind of a vulgar term there. Uh, Rubbish is the PG-13 polite, say the word in church kind of term. Um, He counts it all rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And this is what we're dealing with. And so if to live is Christ and to die is gain, dying is that ultimate gain whereby everything that precedes it, just let it go. Forget about it. Count about loss. Because whether you were the, you know, had a great, great Christian walk, a terrible Christian walk, or somewhere in between, it's all over now. You are now face to face with Jesus Christ. And you will stand before Him and He will make you to stand and He will present you with your reward. And uh, the former things are not brought to mind or remembered. It's like the trash that's not uh, the rubbish that you just put behind you and, and you're face to face with Christ. To die is gain. All right. So we have uh, Kurdos number 2771 with uh, Philippians 3.7 as a good supporting verse for that. Um, there is a third use somewhere, I don't remember where it is. The verb kurdino, number 2770, is used 13 times. And it spans an interesting range. Uh, sometimes it's translated to gain, sometimes it's translated to profit, sometimes it's just simply translated as winning Okay, in, uh, in these places. Uh, prophet is in James 4, I think we're familiar with. This is where we learn how to live one day at a time and we don't, we don't make plans apart from the will of God. You know, come you who say, let's go to this certain city and we'll work for a year and we'll make a profit. And uh, I'm going to finish quoting it before I can flip there. Here we go. James 4.13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. That's a make a kurdos, or a kurdino, actually, is the verb. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, 
we will live and also do this or that. Okay, so it's all Lord willing. Everything is Lord willing. Okay, because I wasn't promised today and I may not wake up tomorrow. It's just how God's grace works. Day by day, I want to thank Him for His provision. So, uh, you know, when I was 19, my whole life, I, I was going to go into being an MP in the Army and come out and get my bachelor's at the University of Washington in criminal justice and uh, go into law enforcement. I wanted to be a homicide investigator by the time I turned 30. In fact, I was already working on my Columbo shtick. I was getting ready to, I was, you know, had a little talent for playing dumb and asking the silly questions and solving the murders. And um, that was my plan. But the book of James says, come now you who say, let's go here and do this and that. You don't know. You don't know. The Father has a better plan and he, uh, he wants you to go to Texas and meet a girl and become a pastor and, and all these things. So uh, anyway, that's the, that's the James passage. We're familiar with that uh, where Cardino is translated uh, to make a prophet. In uh, Matthew 16, uh, what if you uh, lose your soul and you gain the whole world? What have you gained? Okay, And that's got parallel in, in Mark 8 and Luke 9. Uh, but it's, it's the verb kurdino, that's what we're talking about here tonight with the noun kurdos and, uh, and that. Uh, Matthew 16, 26. Verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I think this is a marvelous principle to go along with to live as Christ. So go ahead and lose your life right now. It's not your life anymore anyway. The life that you know, you've been crucified with Christ. The life that you now live, you live by faith. I think this is very much in uh, harmony with, uh, with the Galatians 2.20 that we were looking at earlier. Um, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So, you know, the damage that's being done to souls these days is pretty astronomical uh, with the various sins and other things that are taking place in our culture, but um, you can't put a price on the soul. And uh, you could gain the entire world and uh, it's not uh, the sum total of the world's wealth is not worth even a single soul. So consider what the value was of Christ when He laid down His soul to, uh, to purchase our redemption. Likewise, uh, Matthew 25, a lot of verses in Matthew 25, verses 16, 17, 20, and 22. Matthew 25, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them, and he, Cardino, gained five more talents. All right? So the idea is, what has God given you, and what have you done with it? And he expects you to be working, expects you to be productive, because he's productive. So he gained. Likewise in 17, in the same manner, the one who received two talents gained two more. So he gained. But he who received the one talent went away and he dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. <laughs> he didn't gain anything. Okay? And his, uh, his judgment is not favorable at all when uh, the master comes back. So after a long time the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. The point is he has gained. Cardino. And, um, you know, are these his? The, the servants or the masters? Whose talents are these? The masters. The master's talents. Because the master fronted the five to start with. And he went and he was productive with those five. Nevertheless, these ten belong to the master, not to the worker. Okay? This, is, uh, this passage doesn't promote labor unions very well. Anyway, um, Good, well done, good and faithful servant, slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Faithfulness in small areas leads to greater opportunities. And uh, same thing, the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, um, I have cardinoed two more talents. 
And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. He doesn't want the four talents back. He, he has an eternal destiny here in the kingdom of God. And then the third one. <laughs> the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you are a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. This sounds like a union boss. <laughs> yeah, championing labor, demanding that it's the workers that should have all the rights, and it's not fair that this guy reaps where he didn't sow. We're doing all the work. Why is he reaping? And gathering where he scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. Does he really? What was he supposed to do with that one talent? Yeah, he has his one talent back, but he should have two. Instead he's got one. And this guy is not a good and faithful servant. And so his master answered and said to him, you wicked lazy slave. Now if you consider that's a pretty brutal alternative. What do you want to hear at the judgment seat of Christ? Well done good and faithful servant or you wicked lazy slave? I know what I want to hear. Um, You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seeds. He doesn't deny that's true because he assigns workers to do that on his behalf. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on the very least on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. It wouldn't have been gain like these other guys who are gaining in their production but at least you didn't just bury it in the ground somewhere. At least I can get some interest on, on the deposit for a year. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Wow, here's some super grace blessings. Okay. For everyone who has, more shall be given. That almost sounds like the rich get richer, doesn't it? (laughs) And he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Let no one take your crown, we're told. All right. anyway, so there's that. Um, Philippians 3.8, we were there just a moment ago because you've got 3.7 and 3.8 where he has gain both in the noun and the verb. We read it just a minute ago. Uh, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing greatness of gaining Christ. Um, profiting in James 4, 3. How about winning? Winning. The church discipline passage in Matthew 18, 15. You go to him one-on-one and if he listens to you, you have won your brother. You have gained your brother. It is a profit to the kingdom because you are bringing back a carnal believer into a productive walk with Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.1 It applies to wives, so I never bothered learning it. I should get uh, one of you wives to quote this. Alright, no. Anyway. First Peter, I'm almost done. We're, we're out of time. 1 Peter 3.1 In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be cardino, they may be won, they may be gained, they may be profited, benefited without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. You get to preach through your life the uh, portrait of Christ in the church. So that's the cardino to gain. And then uh, lastly it's 1 Corinthians 9 verses 19, 20, 21, and 22. How fast can I go? I've got 65 seconds. 1 Corinthians 9. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. And, and all throughout this passage, verse 19, 20, 21, 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. And this is uh, the profit. This is the, the gain. This is the winning that the verb cardino speaks of. So to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is a victory for you and I because we're leaving this world of sin and we, uh, it's all gain. It's all gain when we're face to face with Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. I pray that as we continue to study life and death, uh, Christ and gain, I pray, Father, that we would 
see this for what it is, not an either or, but a both and. We uh, live in Christ and uh, the gain is uh, when we cross from this life to the next. Thank you, Father, for divine viewpoint perspective that allows us to rejoice in the victory. Father, I thank you and praise you. I pray for anybody here tonight that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that the gospel would be made clear, Father, that they would understand that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Father, thank you for the grace of God. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.